thank you so much, Christian Manizet, for joining us today in our seventh episode of Be Critical. And me and Viola started this podcast to unravel sustainability topics and dive into both what the theory is, but also what's been going on in recent news. And today's episode is specifically going to be on environmental action and how to achieve a significant impact. And so we decided to invite you, Christian, because you are a bit, well, you're to us an example of how to achieve meaningful impact through environmental action. So I think a good way to start would be maybe to give an overview about your past, um, what you studied, where you come from, and also where your passion for sustainability comes from. So hello, Viola. Hello, guys. Um, super happy to be uh, here with Virginia also in this podcast. My name is Christian. I come from Tahiti, French Polynesia, an island that is risking to go underwater because of climate change. So this is a big a fight I want to take on. It means a lot to me. I also have a kid. He's five years old. And so I care a lot about his future. And these are the two reasons I'm involved in uh, yeah, the climate fight. Um, I've been uh, spending 10 years of my life uh, doing an NGO called makesense.org. And it was mostly focused on building the solutions. So basically uh, making people to take their bike, making people to uh, invest in renewable energy. We have a fun 100 million euros we invest into the solutions. And since a few months now, I jumped on the side of activism and not necessarily developing solutions, but stopping the shitty projects that destroy our planet because I realized that creating our the solutions is not enough to stop the climate crisis. Uh, for example, one oil pipeline that I'm working on, stopping right now, it makes 10% of the emission of a country like France. And so, yeah, as much as we have to build a new world, we also have to stop the bad world that's destroying the planet. Well, this is more a personal question I wanted to ask you. You said that you come from an island, Tahiti, and you're saying that something that is very close to your heart is the fact that it's going underwater. But when you started off with your career, you were more dedicated towards the social sphere. What made you change your mind? And maybe have you seen commonalities? And Yeah, so the, the thing that really uh, I, makes sense was all, always doing things around the environment, uh, not just social. Uh, but the thing that I've seen is that usually with the climate crisis, it's deeply unjust. It's like places like Tahiti who haven't caused the carbon emissions or some countries in Africa or in, also in Pakistan, for example, uh, places that are not responsible for having creating the crisis or the one that suffered the effect of the crisis right now. And so this is unjust. And the effect of climate is not environmental, it's social things. Uh, like, for example, it creates inequality, it creates lack of access to basic resources. And so, yeah, the two are deeply intertwined. And it's a global issue that makes it that if I want to help my island, uh, the best thing I can do is to work at this global level because there's nothing we can do about climate change from Tahiti itself. We're only 200,000 people. And so, yeah, this is something I've been uh, thinking a lot about. Okay, and uh, I have a question. What do you think differs between being a developer of solutions and being an activist? Like, of course, it differs in terms of your daily routine, I guess. But in terms of impact, why do you think we do need activism. I think it's the urgency. We have three years to start decreasing the carbon emission, according to the last IPCC report. 
and the right now we're growing and so the solutions is needed but it will take a lot of time and when you look at it the development the pace of the development of the solution is going slower that the pace of the destruction. And so it's not enough to just say we're gonna build solutions, shift to renewable. We have to stop new oil and gas proje projects and just listen to the science. The science says it's the first priority and the last report again of the IPCC. And so it's just about doing what the science said needs to be done and not just believing that some uh, wonderful solution is gonna happen and, and it's gonna magically save us because we can't take that risk. Uh, because it's not like a casino, it's the life of our kids and our planet. And so I decided to not just bet the future on my kids on just the solution and flipping a coin, but to take ownership and say, okay, let's stop the bad things that create the most emissions right now. And what I love in the activism is, is still the same vibe than in entrepreneurship. You have this thing of pushing against the status quo, taking risk, being bold. And so for me, the entrepreneurs I meet when they develop the solutions is the same spirit that the activist, except that the activists are sometimes misunderstood. And sometimes what they do doesn't please everyone, where no one is against what an entrepreneur creating jobs, etc. So I think being an activist asks to be even more bold and even more committed than being an entrepreneur. So um, building on your questioning, what, how can I achieve a meaningful impact with the limited time and resources I have? Um, I guess your answer is pretty obvious in the sense that you, that, well, you have been dedicating your recent years to stopping AACOP. Um, could you maybe tell us a bit more about what the project is and what the climate action involved? Uh, how the climate action involved takes place. The ECOP is really interesting because it's the the biggest uh, pipeline, the longest heated crude oil pipeline in the making. So it's a big symbol of what needs not to happen anymore from 2022. It's the longest in the world. At the time, we need to go out of the fossil fuels. And so it's not only just the importance of the carbon emission it does, it's 10% of the carbon emission of France. It's as if you uh, make Ireland every year, put Ireland on a map, it's the emission of a country like Ireland every year in one single project. It costs 10 billions. It's deeply unjust because most of the money is going to a French company, not to the people of Uganda and Tanzania from where the pipeline will go through. And also it has huge human rights issues, like 100,000 people who are being displaced, farmers who can't farm anymore and are not being compensated. And the second thing is that it's um, Uganda is a country already suffering a lot from climate change. And so you're adding on them the problem. And so it's deeply unjust in many ways, but it's done by a French company, Total. Uganda is under a dictator. And so basically people, when they speak up against it in Uganda, they're being put in jail. And so it's our responsibility, the French people in France, where we don't take as much risk, we have to speak up against this French company that is doing this new uh, kind of form of colonialism, going take the resources of someone that's already suffering of climate change just to make more money for themselves in a country that's mostly responsible because they produce more carbon emissions than Uganda, for example. So this is ECOP. And the reason I'm involved in this is because, yeah, I'm in France and I can have an impact from here. 
and I can support my activist friend in Uganda fighting against this project from Paris by mobilizing communities and activists. So I think we forgot to mention that the Stop EACOP stands for... It's East Africa Crude Oil Pipeline and it's going to be a heated pipeline, 50 degrees. So you have to heat the crude oil. So it goes wow. in 1,400 kilometers from uh, Uganda uh, all the way to the basin of Lake Victoria to Tanzania port and then being exported. And is there a specific limited amount of time in which you can act or... Is this a relentless process? No, it's now uh, or process. never because you have to stop. Or they don't have all the money to make the project happen. And so the key part of the campaign is to make sure no banks or insurance support the initiatives so they can't make it happen. So there's still time to stop it. It's just the time is shrinking. And so we have to stop the banks and insurance from investing right now in the project to make sure it doesn't happen. They haven't con started the construction yet. Okay, so we defined super well what's EACOP, but I'm wondering, what is STOP EACOP? What do you do? What are the main activities? Yeah, so um, STOP ECOP is a coalition of uh, more than, I think, 15 uh, organizations from all across the world stopping these projects. There is organization like Friday for Future, who was started by Greta, but also organization like Laudato Si, which is started by the Pope for the environment. So there's a set of coalition of really diverse groups willing this to stop. There's local NGOs in Uganda. And me, what I'm doing is really helping in France, as many other activists do, to make the project uh, more known, to build up the pressure uh, to stop it. And so it's kind of a, a movement, the Stop Pickup. But uh, what's being said in terms of Stop Pickup depends on this formal coalition of non-profit uh, that defines together the strategy, what needs to be done. And me, I'm just from France, supporting and helping in whatever capacity I can to put pressure on Total. Okay, so recently our news feeds have been bombarded by news regarding people gluing themselves to paintings, sticking to roads and even throwing tomato or potato smash on, on different paintings in museums. So we wanted to know specifically what your take was on these radical climate actions and whether they were efficient to achieve uh, a meaningful impact. So the first thing is that I, it's a bit like what Vanessa Nakate, who's a climate activist from Uganda, fighting uh, against the pipeline, said on BBC two days ago. It's really funny that people are more shocked by people throwing paint on the plexiglass because it wasn't on the painting. It was on the plexiglass in front of the painting. So it's not throwing yeah. on the painting itself. They are more shocked about that than the fact that there is one third of Pakistan who lost its home because of climate change or the fact that friends in Uganda are being displaced from their home because of like these oil projects and that people talk about the means of how activism do instead of just looking at what we're talking about and are you... And so I think in this way, the work that these activists did uh, works because it puts our contradiction in front of each other. We care more about the way to do activism than the problem in itself. Uh, but then I think the, the throwing the paint and stuff was super cool because it shows this contradiction. Um, but me, I decided to get involved to fight uh, the oil industry, who for me is responsible and who lobbies the government and who's super powerful. 
Uh, and so it's not about asking the government to do something. It's more about asking these oil giants, put pressure on them so they stop. Uh, and so the thing I find risky in the activism when you block the roads, for example, is that it could be perceived by the public as if you are against the people going to work against. And so this is one of the risks which needs to be really well taught. But at the same time, I understand the frustration of the activists who see like the government is not taking enough action. They are not being heard in the election. They are not being so like I can understand, but it just it, it has to be careful to not antagonize the general public. So the general public stay on your side rather than fight against you. Exactly. And that was going to be indeed our follow up questions, because as you mentioned, Uh, there is backlash from the general public and that's something we've been seeing through polls on Twitter, uh, through social media. There is a lot of hate uh, towards these activists. And because, of course, we do see only a part of it. We do see only snapshots of five seconds uh, of these activists throwing um, tomato sauce to paintings, but we don't really see what's behind it. And sometimes we don't even know that Uh, they're trying to just show us that we care more about this painting rather than what's going on in Pakistan, for example. Um, but my question is, do you still think it's worth it to take these actions even if there is backlash from the general public and even if they do not see what's the real meaning behind those actions? Yeah, I, th I think we, we, we uh, have to separate what's the general public opinion and what's the things we see on social media. Because right now, if you look at the numbers, for example, in a country like France, the majority of the population agrees that climate is really important, agrees that not enough is being done. And so they basically agree with the demands of these activists who are doing the actions. And so we can say that there is more like uh, from the data general. Uh, and then the question is how it's being used in the news to antagonize, polarize. It's another discussion and topic. My main point is just to make sure from this activist point of view that they keep at the end, if we want to win, we need to have the majority of the hearts and mind with us. And so to think of these actions in a way that gets people on our side. I'm, I'm saying an example, for example, if you block the roads Uh, by playing a soccer game, uh, it's harder to be against this because it's something nice, you're not... So even if you block the road, you're still just playing soccer and it's the World Cup and people can join and play soccer with you if they don't want to wait in their cars, you know? So maybe there are some strategies and some forms to make sure you keep people on your side through this playful spirit while still creating the disruption. This is something I really believe in. And what do you think about other reactions which have, we have been seeing, for example, in some videos? There are some people who still do support the cause. Like if you ask them, they're still against um, politicians. They still want politicians to take actions. But when they encounter these activists, uh, for example, on their way to work, they stop them and they say, we do get what you're doing and we totally support your cause. But why are we the target? Like, why aren't you targeting politicians? even though, of course, they know that that's a way to get to politicians eventually, but why are you also making us uh, experience the consequences of this if we have nothing to do with that? Because they still need to get to work, they still need to get to the hospital. I would, I would think it's a big... Uh, you have to really well calculate the risk. 
My biggest fear is, for example, that there would be a mother that's about to give birth. She's on the car, the street is blocked, and then it can backlash so, so, so fast. And so it's just to mitigate the risk on the communications and how it will be taken. This is why on my side, I chose to uh, target uh, someone that could be a, a common enemy that people could be angry at because they make them pay their gas more expensive. The government could be angry at because they don't pay their taxes, these oil companies, and the people and activists can be angry at. So it's just about how do you create a common enemy uh, that all of us can attack and target and be pissed at rather than, than, than creating opposition within ourselves, which is already something that the oil industry have tried to create again and again and again. Uh, in 2006, BP, British Petroleum, invented with Ogilvy the concept or they promoted the concept of carbon footprint as a way to put the, the, the guilt on the consumers rather than them, the producers. And then this is created a big mess in family dinners, in family meetings when you go together and people are like, oh, you take the plane, oh, you do that, you do that. And then we fight between each other on who has the best carbon footprint, blah, blah, blah. And then we forgot to say about who's the real people who are making this mess happening, which are the oil producer. And so by doing this, they also make it uh, like win time for them to not change because they say, oh, it's in your hands, not in ours, when it's completely fake and untrue. And so for me, I choose like there's bad guys that makes a lot of money from the status quo and continuing. And it's about stopping them. Then the question is like, what is the the way that maybe government will side with the people rather than these guys and lobbying? And maybe in some way, civil disobedience and this kind of actions can be so annoying for the government that then they will be afraid and they will say, okay, uh, we hear you and we're going to do that because we don't want more disruption or we understand that you will not stop. All these strategies of just stop oil and, and dernier renovation things are really new. I've never seen something like that before. So we don't know yet in which the side is going to go backlash or getting government to stop i i, I don't know yeah no i think uh, something that is very important to mention is narrative because it can totally create disruption within the same group instead of against a common enemy such as in the case of uh, stop air cop and i think it's also important to understand the message that comes behind a 30 second tiktok video or instagram reel in which you just see the action itself, people shouting glued to a painting, and most people just stays, uh, remain to the, the fact itself without going further and kind of understanding what is the background of that action, what is the meaning and what are the requests and demand of those activists. Yeah. Um, I think, I I think the, the, the one of the painting is really less tricky than blocking the roads or blocking the thing, because at the end of the day, they throw paintings and stuff on plexiglass. So uh, the, yeah. the media shares it that they put on the, the paint, but nothing was changed, nothing was destroyed. And, but it's, it's really fun, the perception. Uh, I mean, yes, but in some cases, um, some people might also say that by throwing tomato sauce to a painting, you're not making new art, you're not being provocative, but in some instances, you're threatening a culture in a way. Uh, well, us... As Italians, for instance, are very specific about our paintings and we identify a lot with the art of our, of our country. And so I think what is very pivotal in this moment is for climate activists to really get their message across clearly and 
for people not to stop with just the impact, with just the action itself? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, for me, it's not even activism. It can be taken as a form of art. You know, like it's a, <laughs> if these two people didn't branded themselves as activists, but they branded themselves as artists and were here to interrogate art and climate, whatever, maybe this really great that uh, we have this culture of artists that are uh, irreverent and complete, co always pushing forward art, you know? So that's what you said. It's a yeah, question yeah, of, of narratives. <laughs> and so this is the, the thing I like. Like I find this less shocking than having the, 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 the banana, you know, the banana, which was sticked on a wall and it was like a million dollar yeah. art piece. This to me is really shocking. So, yeah, but, I understand. but to me, it succeeded. It went all over the news and I think yeah. it made people talk about the movement Stop Oil and people are like, what do they say Stop Oil? And if there's millions of people seeing Stop Oil and it gets in their heads slowly, I think it's really smart. Yes, no, absolutely. And um, I guess that brings us to our last question, um, which would be building on your personal experience, both as an activist as, and as an entrepreneur. What do you think is the most effective way to actually achieve systemic impact? Is it through gluing yourself to the streets, targeting big companies through lobbying or chaining yourself to the doors of Total? What's your take on it? Yeah, so for me, it's, it's more about there's not one type of activism and stuff is just which tactic do you use for which result and usually when you work on a big campaign like ECOP you start by analyzing all the pressure points you can put so this project stops there's the pressure point of the banks if the banks don't finance it won't happen the pressure point of the insurance if the insurance don't insure the banks won't finance so it won't happen so it, it makes even more sense to target the insurance there's the pressure point of the suppliers. If they don't have suppliers to do the pipe, they can't build the pipeline. There's the pressure point of the employees within the company. If the employee are against it, the CEO takes a lot of risk by doing it. So you have many pressure points like that that you analyze. You have the political pressure points, like if the EU parliament put a resolution against the projects, like what happened, it also makes... So you have all these pressure points. And then you see what is the best tactic we can use to create pressure on that point. And sometimes is make good uh, idea to use civil disobedience. So for example, uh, for the insurance, there's Extinction Rebellion who blocked Lloyd's, one of the big insurance marketplace by saying stop pickup. Sometimes there's the community organizing, having people every day in front of the office, distributing flyers, talking to people, phoning them, trying to convince them why they shouldn't insure is another strategy. And then there's the press and communication having a big picture of the pipelines, top pickup, and then on the financial times, which is read by the insurer, is another thing. And a lot of the time, you need all these pressure points, all these tactics to happen together so that then it breaks and the insurance stops and stuff. It's, it's like acupuncture, if you think. And so from the outside, you just okay. see the end result, the action, but then you don't realize that there's so many things that are happening and then this will make it that this project will stop and things like that. So it's not like one recipe. It's basically you have a pool of recipe for different uh, ingredients you need to happen and then you activate all of them and you partner with the right organization who has the different set of tactics and, and tools they use. But a lot of the time, the civil disobedience part, like for example, blocking total general assembly with 400 people, Greenpeace arriving with the, 
this is great because it's not just the thing of blocking. It's just that in one set of action with little means, you have media coverage all over the country at once. So if you think about it, the NGOs, they don't have millions of euros to put in communication, but by organizing an action which can cost 10,000 euros, you have returns as if you had spent 50 million euros in terms of communication and media. And so this is what's report smart a lot of the time. It, it's not about, so that's why I'm saying like, this is just a point and these people throwing the thing on the thing is so brilliant. Like imagine these two women, they don't have, they're students. They didn't, they, how much did they bought the canned soup? Okay. How much their time with, yeah. with something that costs 20 euro, they generated media awareness that would cost to a company willing to buy the same millions. And so this in itself is, is how like it's success. Yeah, and I think what is really helpful uh, that I have been seeing is when you have the video of the action, so ju them just throwing um, sauce to the painting, followed by the interview that the journalists are doing to them right after, in which they're actually explaining why they're doing it, what's the reasoning behind it, and also in which they say, we know that we're doing no harm, like we know that there's plexiglass, we know we're not going to ruin the painting. And I think that is really useful to fix the problem of narrative that we were talking about, because it really shows that they are there not to harm, but just to attract attention to a cause which is, of course, noble, I would say. But for me, it's, it's just, it's art. You know, well, yeah. like activism at the end of the day, theater is to grab the attention of people and make them think. And what she did is just, she's, would be an artist, no one would say anything. It's just because there's been a big narrative, especially pushed by Big Oil, on... Mm. Uh, making people think that activists are radicalized people that are a danger to society. And this is why it makes us, every time we use this word activist, people are like, oh, oh my God, dangerous, radical, blah, blah, blah. But this is also a narrative that's being pushed towards us. And I really love this quote of Antonio Guterres, you know, the secretary. He said the real radicals are the ones who continue to want oil right now when we know it's going to lead to our destruction. This is real radicalism. And so I think the, narr the overall narrative is to say, what is radicalism right now? And to try to shape that things from every time you do climate actions, you're radical. No, it's you're actually someone super rational. The one that are radical are the one continuing to do oil while we know we can't do it anymore. This is radical. No, yes, absolutely. And I think it's super interesting to see how there needs to be a change in perspective even within the environmental community, how um, art and like these, well, these actions in general tend to polarize people even within uh, the environmental movement. But I think it's also interesting to see how art has always been used as a tool to bring change, um, to bring relevance to issues. And I think we should really ask ourselves, like, how can we achieve the biggest impact with the limited time and resources that we have available? And yeah. a lot of the time, what you see in the news is just the tip of the iceberg of all the strategies and techniques yeah. being yeah. used. Exactly. There's a lot of work behind on strategizing different organizations, trying different tactics. But the, the, the big part is also hard for me to criticize others and how they take action, because that's exactly what the people want the status quo want is that we 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 say bad things at each other at everyone who wants climate like to be fixed it's and, it, and then if we divide each other they win so the whole game is to yeah. divide people saying oh we're against this mode of action so we have to refuse this debate 
and be like, no, you know, like the situation is so dire. People are really anxious. Young people are really anxious. Of course, people are going to make stupid mistakes in their activism, whatever. But still, we have to be united as one and stick together because the main thing that's going to happen to win is that everyone who care and take action, stay together, defend the other who take action and to not divide each other. Yeah. Uh, because every time where people are united, like they, they win the public debates. And so that's the, the thing. Uh, but it's just like we have to accept that some people are going to go stop it stuff. And it's okay. It's part of the learnings. But it's still less uh, bad than the people who are destroying the planet who don't just do stupid stuff. They do criminal stuff. So uh, basically, so you actually believe that there is a difference between uh, the activities? No, I, I think the, also... soup, the soup was easy. The hard part is really blocking the streets. This is tricky. I wonder how they're going to manage the risk, you know, if something goes wrong. What did you uh, want to say, Viola? Yeah. Yes, uh, I actually wanted to touch upon being united. And I think what we're seeing in climate activism is a bit what we're seeing with feminism when we say uh, women su should stop judging other women because they're just not healthy and is just not defends the value we want to stand for. And I think this is really what we're seeing with these different um, groups in climate activism. Now we do have people who are fighting for climate against climate change, but they do want to detach themselves from activists. You know, they're... Even myself, like I found myself defending <laughs> defending myself against my brother saying, of course, I'm not an activist, like um, you can listen to me. And I think this just shows how much we're not united and how much we don't believe in it. Because if we do not stick together, then what are we doing? Are we fighting for the same cause or not? Yeah, and the people that are the most motivated in civil disobedience are actually the religious and faith people, in my experience. Like, for example, you take the, the people from Laudato Si, the people from Green Faith. Like, I was in New York. They blocked BlackRock, like the whole, like BlackRock is this big investment bank. And you had a rabbi, a priest, like, and thing. And they were together blocking the thing. And this is really powerful because they believe in some laws that are above human laws of morality and immorality. So they're ready to break human laws for something they think is more just. And so it's really interesting because it's not the image you have, but it's actually the people that do the most of the civil disobedience action. And, it, and, it's, and it's really peaceful. It's, it shows their religion. And so that shows the spirit of civil disobedience in a way. And this is really interesting to see and has really big impact. So I think we have also a misrepresentation of the news of who is a climate activist and things like that. Because from my experience, It's really like rabbi, priest, and it's all like always the one who get arrested by the police, but you don't see it on the news. No, no way. <laughs> I had Actually, no idea. It's like Gandhi was really spiritual, you know, Martin Luther King and things. And so for me, like the people of faith, uh, they have huge power in making change happen. And we can we see this more and more. And so for me, it's kind of uh, the people who are going to bring the change are the young activists who are right now on the front line, but also the old activists who have nothing to lose and whether they were from faith or because they've been in the climate movement for a year, the people from 20 years old and the one more than 60. Uh, the others were too much in the day-to-day -day and we care about going to our work and think that sometimes we can't see the bigger picture. I guess this is a wonderful way to finish our podcast. Um, thank you so much, Christian Vanizet. We can't thank you enough for joining us today. And it's yeah. been a lot of food for thought a lot to think about a lot of reconsideration i've personally learned a lot and had to reconsider my position as 
an environmentalist and a climate activist in my own way. Yeah, and I think the main learning is that we should really stop polarizing. So guys, let's just stop because it's not getting us anywhere. And, so, and can I finish with just one thing is um, there's 420 carbon bombs like ECOP. If we don't stop them, we're going to be at 3.5 degrees, which means half of humanity, boom, out. And so this is really big, big, big problem has to be taken super seriously, super fast. But also know, guys, that not everything is lost. We can win because it only takes a few activists of 20 years old to scare the biggest oil companies, to scare president, to scare the banks so they don't finance. So when we're all together behind those people, pushing for them, pushing for what Vanessa Nakate is asking, what Greta is asking, we can move mountains. And so everything is, can happen and we just have to stick together and we're going to stop these bombs. Let's go do it right now. Let's finish the podcast and hit the streets. <laughs> yeah, we should. Thank you again, Christian. Thank you so much. Ciao. Bye-bye, guys.